0: Beloved, please turn to John 7, John 7:25. 7, we'll read John 7:25 to 36. You cannot come. John 7:25. Therefore some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, "Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill?" And look, he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Jesus therefore cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. They were seeking, therefore, to seize Him, and no man laid his hand on Him, because His hour had not yet come. But many of the multitude believed in Him, and they were saying, When the Christ shall come, He will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will He? The Pharisees heard the multitude muttering these things about Him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize Him. Jesus, therefore, said, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You shall seek me and you shall not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews therefore said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we shall not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is the statement that he said, You will seek me? And you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that Christ is our supreme example. He is our model of true faith, of allegiance to you, of obedience, of a desire to please you and do nothing else. And Father, we ask that we'll learn from his example because we know Just as our teacher was, so shall the disciple be. A slave is not greater than his master. We pray, Father, that you'll teach us to be just like Jesus Christ in all things. Give us wisdom and give us the strength, give us grace. Everything we need to be like him. Teach us from this portion of your word, these attributes and these instructions, the things that he said to his opponents. And may we do the same. In Christ, amen. Many times we hear about Jesus. We hear about Jesus and the kind of person he was and is. But the problem we have in our modern times is that we don't have a complete and full picture of Jesus, Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, who he actually was and what he did. In fact, when many people assert belief in Christ or Jesus, they say they believe in the New Testament, they say they believe in what He said, and they say that we should be just like Him, be kind, loving, and gentle. But what they often do is they exclude other aspects of the words of Christ and the life of Christ, and what they really have is a partial Jesus. They have a partial Christ, And they're not really following Him the way He intended for us to follow Him. In fact, if we were to assert to them that they actually believe Jesus sinned, they would be appalled at that allegation. They would actually be appalled that we believe, they believe, Jesus was a sinner. Why? Because they only want to obey Jesus part of what he did. They don't want to obey everything that he did as an example for us. And they have to do that by first assuming that these things that Jesus did, for example, telling the people in our passage, you cannot come. You do not know me. You do not know God. When would we ever say those things? Well, those who have a partial Jesus would never say those things to people. But if we have a full picture of Jesus Christ, there will be occasions when we must say those words, when we must leave them with judgment that is on their heads, and unless they repent, they will receive the judgment of God. That's kind of what we have going on right here. Jesus is being persecuted, but he does not let up. He tells his persecutors, his antagonists, his skeptics, exactly what they need to hear, even if it means he will be further persecuted. He tells them what he needs or what they need to hear. Let's begin at verse 25. Verse 25, Therefore some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Jesus is at the Feast of Booths in this chapter, chapter 7, verse 2, Now the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booths was at hand. That means he's in Jerusalem where the temple is and he is there where the crowds are, many, many people, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people there in the city, there to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Well, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, those who are in proximity to the temple of Jerusalem, in proximity to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, in proximity to the chief priests and the high priests and all the priests, those who were there where people would often come to bring their sacrifices, people from around the many tribes, those inhabitants of Jerusalem, they have a sense, a sure sense of what's going on all around them in terms of their religious context. And what do they say? Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill who are the they that are seeking to kill this man Jesus Christ it says in verse 26 the rulers the rulers the religious rulers of the day they are the ones seeking to kill Christ the irony of this remember look at verse 19 Jesus accused the people of seeking to kill him in verse 19 719, why do you seek to kill me? The multitude answered, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. They said, nobody's trying to kill you, and in fact, because you say that, you must be demon possessed. You're so crazy, a demon is controlling you. But in 725, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they know that the rulers want to kill him. This has happened already since chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Because Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath day, they were seeking to kill him. So they wanted to arrest him in order to kill him. But they were looking for an opportune time. Verse 30, 730. they were seeking therefore to seize him. It says also in 744, some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. They were wanting to kill Christ. Why? For healing a man on the Sabbath day. There will be more reasons why they want to kill him, such as in chapter 8, when he claims deity for himself, they want to kill him at the end of chapter 8. But at this point, for healing a man, a lame man who had been in his illness for 38 years. They wanted to kill him for that. Well, the people know. Enough people know. A lot of people know that they want to do so. Instead of repenting of sin and rejoicing in that which is good, a man healed by Christ, they want to kill him. Verse 26, And look, he is speaking publicly and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? He's speaking publicly, that is, he's speaking in the temple, which we learn later in verse 28. He cried out in the temple, and for him to cry out means he's raising his voice so that everybody can hear what he has to say. So in 26, when he's speaking publicly, these inhabitants of Jerusalem are amazed. They're amazed that he's doing it. Why? Because he's supposed to be arrested and killed. How is it that he has the courage? How is it that Jesus has the courage or the boldness to speak loudly, to be public, and to preach whatever he wanted to preach when the rulers want to arrest and kill him? They are amazed at that. In verse 26, they entertain a thought. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? They entertain the thought. What would prevent the rulers who have the authority to send officers, which they do later, what is it that they have believed or thought in their heads that prevents them from arresting Him? The people of Jerusalem wonder, Do the rulers, are they actually moving in the direction of Christ? Are they actually contemplating faith in Christ? They don't really believe He is the Christ, do they? The inhabitants of Jerusalem don't believe that, but they're wondering, do the rulers believe that? Is that what is preventing them from arresting Him? And what is it that they don't understand? They don't understand the divine providence at work here, which we'll see in a few minutes. For example, at verse 30, because his hour had not yet come. They are only looking at the horizontal situation. They're not looking at it from God's perspective. They're only looking at things from a human perspective, the horizontal. What do we believe? What do they believe? Why is it that they haven't arrested him? Is it because they believe he's the Christ? We don't believe he's the Christ. We inhabitants of Jerusalem, we don't. But do the rulers believe that? And is that why he's not arrested? After all, what do these people of Jerusalem know? Verse 27. However... We're never going to go like the rulers, even if the rulers are going in the direction of Christ. We're not going to go that way because of verse 27. However, we know where this man is from. We know his origin. The rulers, they might be contemplating faith in him, but we're not going to go there because we know his origin. We know where this man is from. In chapter 6, verse 42... 642, they were saying, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? When they say we know where he is from, they are saying they know his parents are Joseph and Mary. He could not have any other origin, he could not have come down from heaven. He could not be divine, he could not be the Christ because we know his father is Joseph and his mother is Mary. Later on, in chapter 8, they also imply something about his origin. John 8:41. John 8:41. You are doing the deeds of your father, Jesus said to them. They said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one Father that is God. We were not born of fornication. We have one Father that is God. Now, they imply in verse 41 that Jesus was born of fornication. Their Father is God, but Jesus' Father is some man, and He was born out of wedlock. He was not born in lawful marriage, but out of wedlock, called fornication. That's what their implication is. In the history of the church, the Jews, in the time of the apostles and afterwards, they assigned Jesus' fatherhood to a Roman soldier who illegitimately fornicated. He fornicated with Mary when Mary was engaged to Joseph. So Jesus was an illegitimate bastard son of a Roman soldier and Mary. That's what they believed. So they are saying, we know of his human origin, whether that was from a Roman soldier, which would be the most egregious of their allegations against Christ, or that even Joseph and Mary came together before they were married, while she, they were engaged, they were engaged Matthew chapter 1 when she became pregnant and that's what alarmed Joseph and the angel had to, uh, had to comfort Joseph and advise Joseph on what to do whether it was through a Roman soldier or Joseph before they were married they are saying Joseph is the father we know Mary his mother we know of his human origin that's merely who he is Verse 27, John 7, 27. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. They make an assertion here that is not entirely true. It's not entirely true. For example, in chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 40. Some of the multitude, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, This is the Christ. Still others were saying, Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there arose a division in the multitude because of him. And some of them wanted to seize him but no one laid hands on him. There's a difference of opinion. Verse 40, they say he is the prophet. Well, the prophet, in chapter 6, verse 14, is the prophet who is to come into the world. If he's to come into the world, he must have an existence before he came into the world. In chapter 7 and verse 14, Forty-one, they say, this is the Christ. Some of them were saying, yes, he is the Christ. If he is the Christ, then he must have a heavenly origin, a divine origin, such as from Psalm 2 or from Psalm 110. These speak of him in certain ways that ascribe deity to him. Psalms 2 and 110. Deity. So that must mean he has to come down out of heaven. Others were saying in verse 41, he's from Galilee, but no Christ is supposed to come from Galilee. Well, that means that they're mistaken. If they had read Isaiah 9, 1 to 7, Isaiah 9, to 7, in the first part of Isaiah 9, it says he is supposed to come from Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles, That's supposed to be his place of ministry. We know his residence during his ministry of three and a half years was in the city of Capernaum in the region, in the province of Galilee. So he was supposed to come from Galilee in that sense. Further, verse 42, Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Yes, that's also true, in a sense. He was born, uh, I'm sorry, he was, yes, he was born in Bethlehem, born in Bethlehem of Judea. The prophet Micah, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, he announced it in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. And then, when Jesus was born, Herod asked the chief priests, the priests of Jerusalem, about where the Christ is supposed to be born. And the priests, the unbelieving priests and the scribes, they tell Herod, the king, in Matthew 2, verse 5. Matthew 2, 5 and 6. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. In Micah, Micah is cited here, when they cite Micah, Micah teaches that Christ is to be born in Bethlehem. So is he supposed to be from Bethlehem? Yes, in the sense that that's his native place, Bethlehem. And Micah the prophet predicted it hundreds of years in advance. He not only predicted that he would he would be born in Bethlehem, but that his Days are from the days of eternity, the way Micah says it in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Born in Bethlehem, but his origin is not Bethlehem in terms of his divine nature, but he existed from all eternity past. His days are from the days of eternity, which is also what Isaiah said. He would minister in Galilee, but he also would be called Father of Eternity, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, in Isaiah 9, 6. So, deity and humanity, and His humanity has different origins or implications. Born of Mary only, and the Holy Spirit. Born in Bethlehem, in terms of His birthplace. He was raised in Nazareth. According to Luke 4:16, raised in Nazareth in Galilee, he ministered in Galilee and resided in the city of Capernaum. All of these are true of Christ. And then he would ultimately die in Jerusalem. So all of these places are places of significance. So what do we find in this? We find that they in 727 Whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. They're not exactly telling the truth. Further, we find that often confusion arises among people because people do not understand everything in relation to a given topic. In this case, the origin of Christ. They don't understand it because they haven't studied Soberly and accurately the Scriptures to understand what all the Scripture says about Christ. It was easy for the multitude to say, He's from Galilee, not from Bethlehem. He's from Bethlehem, not from Galilee. He's from Nazareth, not from uh, Bethlehem. So on and so forth. His origin is only human. And then they even mistake what that means. Without including... His divine origin. They exclude the divine origin of Christ because once they admit the divine origin of Christ, they are obligated to believe it. They are obligated to believe it once they admit his divine origin. That's what Jesus emphasizes in verses 28 and following his divine origin. He emphasizes that because he knows that's the one belief they are resisting. That is the main belief they are resisting. In other words, where they are failing the most, Jesus exposes the most. When people are sinning in front of us and we see their sin, everybody sins in many ways, right? But when a sin comes to the surface... That's the sin that must be addressed because the sinner, the unrepentant sinner, has brought it to the surface. So when he brings it to the surface, that's the sin we address. And we should not shrink back from doing it. Just as Christ does here, we should do the same. If they bring up some sin that they're practicing, then address the sin that they bring up, that they are practicing. To deal with it like that. Don't say, I'm going to wait for another Time. Deal with it then and there. Just as Jesus does. Verse 28. Chapter 7 and verse 28. Jesus therefore cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him. And he sent me. Jesus Christ, he speaks loudly. He cries out because there's crowds of people there, lots of people, and he wants all of them to hear. Because they are muttering and murmuring among themselves, such as verse 32, the Pharisees heard the multitude muttering. So they're having conversations under their breath, talking to each other, perhaps whispering to each other, in order to protect themselves from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, from the priests, in order to protect themselves from those who might believe and those who don't believe, and make sure that no one mistakes who they are. Jesus handles all of this by avoiding any private conversations and then just says it aloud, loudly, by crying out in the temple. Now, if he does it in the temple, what is Jesus now doing? He is not only clearly telling everybody what's on his mind, but he is making himself vulnerable to arrest. He's making himself vulnerable to people rising up, even the (laughs) multitudes rising up against him because they hate what he has to say. But what does he do? Fearlessly, courageously, he preaches loudly and teaches them what they need to hear. He has confidence in his own time of death. He knows that this occasion is an occasion for teaching, not an occasion for them to seize him, that it's not going to happen. So he courageously preaches to the people. And what does he say? You both know me and know where I am from. You both know me and know where I am from. He tells them that they know him. They know indeed who he is and they know indeed where he came from. They cannot claim ignorance of his person And they cannot claim ignorance of his origin from heaven. They can't claim any of those. Why would he say that? Because in their own words, they're saying they don't know. Why would he say that? Why would he say they do know who he is? John chapter 2. John chapter 2. John 2:23. 223 Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast many believed in his name beholding his signs which he was doing but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men and because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man for he himself knew what was in man chapter 3 verse 1 Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews this man came to him by night and said to him Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. First, the crowds in chapter 2, then Nicodemus, the individual in chapter 3, they both acknowledge that Jesus Christ performed miraculous signs in public, and everyone acknowledged that he was worthy of faith. It was worthy to believe in him and that he came from God. Verse 2 We know that you have come from God. We, meaning Nicodemus, among the rulers, among the rulers, among the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they representing the people, the crowds of people. They all believed that Jesus came from God. They also believe that the miracles he had performed came from God. They knew that. But now they're saying they don't know that. On the one hand, they know an element of truth. On the other hand, they're denying that element because if they acknowledge it to the full, they have to believe in him. Just, with, just as with Nicodemus, so with the multitudes, Jesus does not trust them. They know, they believe He's from God, performing miracles as a great teacher from God, but Jesus doesn't believe them. Verse t- chapter two twenty four. 24, Jesus on His part was not entrusting Himself to them. In chapter 3, chapter 3 and verse 11, You do not receive our witness if I told you earthly things and you do not believe. How shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Nicodemus did not believe. He did not believe unto salvation, just as the multitudes did not believe unto salvation. We also know from chapter 4 that the Samaritans, from the Samaritan woman's testimony, that they believed, and it says in chapter 4, verse 42, we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. The Samaritans, with the help of the Samaritan woman, know that this is the Savior of the world. There were people who knew who He was. And Jesus reminds them of this fact you know who I am and you know where I came from. Now, if I did not come of my own initiative, verse 28, I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. He's now reasserting the fact that God the Father sent him into the world. So when I speak, when Jesus is speaking, he's saying, when I speak, I am speaking what the Father sent me to speak. If you claim to know God and you don't believe me, you don't believe everything I'm telling you, then you don't know God. It says in verse 28, Whom you do not know. God is true. God speaks the truth. God assigns Christ as the Apostle and High Priest of our confession, Hebrews 3, one to preach the truth. If you don't believe that Jesus preaches the truth, then you don't believe that God preaches the truth because God is truth. He is truth. Therefore, you don't know God. You don't know God because you don't believe what I'm telling you about God because I was sent from God. That was not easy for them to hear. There is no way they would have taken that favorably. To accuse someone of not knowing God when he thinks he knows God is the greatest insult one could deliver to another. This is a problem worldwide because when Christians send missionaries abroad, we tell Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, atheists, that they do not know God. We tell many people they do not know God. And most of the people who hear those words are utterly offended by our words. Yet we're supposed to teach them. In this case, in verse 28, it's more egregious than that. Because Jesus is telling the people who have access to the Word of God who hear the word of God read, who read it themselves, who have memorized parts of the Bible themselves. And he's telling those people, his hearers, who are among them experts in the Bible. Remember in verse 32, the Pharisees, the chief priests, he's telling them that they do not know God. That is the most egregious, the heightened offense of any offense. That is the offense. They have the Bible in their own hands. They hear the Bible taught. They teach people the Bible, but they don't know the God of the Bible. Because they don't know God through the true Christ of the Bible. They don't have Father, they don't have Son, and they don't have Holy Spirit dwelling in them. They have nothing to do with God. This is the great offense that Jesus proclaimed to them. Verse 29. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Not only does he exclude them from the knowledge of God, but he restricts knowledge of God to himself. He excludes them from having the true knowledge of God, And then he says, I know him, not merely I know him factually, I don't know him merely in terms of informational knowledge, I know him in terms of personal knowledge. I know him in terms of experiential knowledge. I know him in terms of true knowledge because he sent me. I am from him, he sent me. The focus Jesus makes On himself. If they don't believe Christ, they don't believe the words of Christ, then they don't believe God. The offense is manifested in verse 30. They were seeking, therefore, to seize Him. Instead of repenting when they heard the truth, instead of admitting, I don't know God. I don't love God. I don't love His Word. I don't want to please Christ. I don't want to obey Christ. Instead of confessing their sins, repenting, turning away from their sins, instead of doing that, they become so incensed, so angry that they want to seize Him. They want to grab Him, arrest Him, and do away with Him. They want to be complicit in the crucifixion of Christ before its time. This is often what people do. When we speak the truth and when we live the truth, our opponents will persecute us. They will persecute us first by their demeanor toward us, then by their words toward us, and then by their actions toward us. They will be against us. It should not surprise us. Because as we read earlier in the Beatitudes, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So if they persecuted the prophets who were before you, if they persecute Christ, if they did it to them, they will do it to us. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts fourteen, twenty-two. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy three, twelve. As it happened to them, it will also happen to us if we preach the truth and live the truth. But we have an assurance also in verse 30. And no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. They wanted to do it, but by the providence of God, the control of God, they were prevented from doing it. The apostle doesn't explain how that exactly happened, but they were prevented from doing it. They wanted to do it, but the circumstances prevented them from doing so. Perhaps it was because they were afraid of the multitudes and were afraid that since the multitudes understood that he was a prophet, they didn't want to arrest him when the multitudes were on the side of Christ. This is likely the reason why. Though he doesn't tell us here, at other places he does tell us that that was the reason. This is why ultimately when he is arrested, he's arrested by a mob in the dark in the Garden of Gethsemane when the crowds would not witness it, would not see it. But God here prevented that from happening. This assures us that Jesus' death was not an accidental death. Jesus' death was not a political death. It was not because he was on the wrong side of politics, the wrong side of politics In his day, Jesus' death was appointed, it was ordained by God to happen at the right time. This is the refrain John the Apostle uses throughout this book of John. He says, Because his hour had not yet come. This is why he wasn't arrested. The fact that Jesus will die in due time is asserted, for example, in John 10, John 10, 17, and 18. John 10, 17, and 18. He says, Christ speaks, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. He says no one takes his life away from him. It's not out of control. He lays it down on his own initiative and he will even take it up on his own initiative asserting his deity. He lays it down and then he takes it up on his own initiative. Jesus is the one who is in, fully, is in full control of his own death and even of his own resurrection. He will die when it is time. The same will be the case with us. Ecclesiastes 3, 2 says, there is a time to uh, live and a time to die. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 2. A time to live or a time to be born and a time to die. Psalm 139, Psalm 139, 16. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book, They were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. God ordains the days for us. How long we live, when we die, how we die, all of this is ordained by God. That means we shouldn't fear. If it's our time, it's our time. In the meantime, be faithful to God. Verse 31. We have another group in verse 31. We'll have in 31 and 32 a few more groups of people mentioned. And let's notice their reaction. Verse 31. But many of the multitude believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ shall come, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has. Will he? This first group, many of the multitude, presumably not just the inhabitants of Jerusalem now, but because they come from the many tribes and even from a, around the world to come and celebrate the Feast of Booths, here they, it says that they believed in Him. Many believed in Him because of His miracles. Because of His miracles, they say He has to be the Christ. But then the question comes up. Did they believe merely that He was the Christ, but not that He was the Christ to die for their sins and rise from the dead? Did they believe merely that He was a miracle-working Christ, a supernatural Christ, for the benefit of their physical needs, but not for their spiritual needs. Were they thinking of the Christ only in physical and material terms to benefit them with supernatural feats? Or were they looking at Him for spiritual redemption? It's my understanding that they were only looking at Him For the former, that is for the material, the physical. They were not looking at him for the spiritual. Why do I say so? I think that he is, or John the Apostle is showing us another example of something he reiterates about the multitude and the many. The word multitude or crowds and the word many. John the Apostle has told us about them before and he will continue to tell us about them. For example, in chapter 2, which verses we have seen several times. Chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. There's our term, many. Many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. Why? Because of the miracles. But Jesus on His part was not entrusting Himself to them, for He knew all men. They believed in Him as the Christ performing miracles, but Jesus did not believe in them because He knew all men. He knew what was really in their heart, that they didn't fully believe in Him for their salvation. They didn't believe in Him to die and rise again for their sins that was in chapter 2 look also at John chapter 8 John chapter 8 and verse 31 John 8:31 Jesus therefore was saying to those Jews who had believed him If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. He says this to them, those who had believed him, or believed in him. It says, in him, in verse 30. Many came to believe in him. The many who came to believe him, he warns them, he tells them, teaches them to abide in him. If they remain in him, if they stay in him, then they are truly his disciples. Well, that offends them. That offends them from verses 33 till the end of the chapter. They accuse him falsely. They want to kill him. They attempt to kill him by the end of the chapter. Another example of false believers. And the word many is used. Many in John eight thirty, Further, John chapter 12. John 12, 42. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in Him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing Him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Verse 42 also says many, many among the rulers, many among the Sanhedrin, that is, the council of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they were the rulers, the religious rulers of the day, and many of them believed in Christ, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him because they did not want to be thrown out of the synagogue. Why? Because fundamentally, they didn't love God, the approval of God. Fundamentally, essentially, in their heart, they loved the approval of men. They wanted to follow men rather than God. This is why we take John seven thirty one to be a similar verse. A verse that expresses that many of them They believed in him in a sense, but not in the full and true sense for their salvation. That should not surprise us. We have said that the scripture reiterates this from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, that there are many who will profess faith, but not truly believe. Verse 32. Because this happens, the Pharisees, and the chief priests are nervous. Verse 32, they won't allow even a little bit of truth to go in the direction of Christ. According to verse 32, the Pharisees heard the multitude muttering these things about Him. They heard the multitude muttering, speaking softly about Christ, and they are afraid that they're going to fully believe in Christ, so they want to put an end to it. They want to stop it. So, what, And what do they do? The chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. In this body of religious teachers in Israel, known as the Council or known as the Sanhedrin, it was made up of the Sadducees and the Pharisees the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they are mostly known, and for short, many, many times we refer to the Pharisees, and that they were teachers of the Scriptures to the people, and they were the ones who were in the synagogues scattered throughout the nation, and they had access to the people day by day and week by week. The Pharisees were teachers of the people who had access to the people day by day and week by week. They would have a sense of what the people were saying in that way. The Pharisees, they would be akin to today's pastors. Pastors have access to the people like that. Then, the chief priests, the priesthood, that resided not with the Pharisees because the Pharisees were laymen They were trained laymen. The chief priests, they were from the family of Aaron and from the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi, that was the tribe ordained by Moses to teach the people and to offer sacrifices in the temple. It was the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron within the tribe of Levi. They were set aside to do so. In later times, they were known as the Sadducees, known as the Sadducees because the name Sadducees actually has its origin most likely from the priest Zadok, Z-A-D-O-K, Zadok Zadok, in the time of David and Solomon, that family among the descendants of Aaron, that retained the priesthood. The priesthood, therefore, most of the time, those in Jerusalem especially, they would not have been so informed about what the common people knew and believed. They were more isolated from the common people. Now, when they lived in their towns, they had more access to the common people, but they had periods of time when they would be isolated from them, especially when they were in Jerusalem. When they were... They and the Pharisees, that is the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they would be in their council teaching the people the doctrines that they should believe and the practices that they should practice. The Sadducees or the priests, they would be akin to our modern professors, the Christian professors of our day. They are more isolated from the common people and in some ways, they intentionally, deliberately keep themselves at distance from the common people. They don't like to mix and mingle and do a lot of the day-to-day work in the local church. Even in the megachurches, if professors attend those megachurches, they keep themselves away often from the common people. They just attend because it's expected of them to attend, but they don't want really anything to do with the people. To know them, get to know them, to help them, and and things like that. There's some exceptions to that, but generally that is what the situation is. They are isolated. It's also interesting that the Pharisees, they believed in the miraculous. The Sadducees often denied the miraculous, which is also what happens today. If you ask the average pastor, he's not going to forthrightly deny supernaturalism. But if you ask a professor, even a Christian professor teaching the Bible, if he believes in supernaturalism, if he feels comfortable telling you the truth, he'll tell you, no, there there are no miracles. Even the miracles of the Bible were not true miracles. But, though the Sadducees and the Pharisees have their differences, they work together against a common enemy. They send officers among them, like a guard or a police force among them. They send officers to seize Christ, to arrest Him, because they want to get rid of Him. Their differences they lay aside because they really, really hate Christ. So what does Jesus do? 33, Jesus therefore said, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You shall seek me and shall not find me, and where I am you cannot come. We know that Christ obviously is alluding to the fact that he's going to die on the cross. He's going to be buried for three days. He's going to rise from the dead, and he's going to be on the earth temporarily for a period of 40 days while he manifests himself to his disciples over a period of 40 days. Then he will ascend into heaven And he won't be preaching and teaching among the people anymore. We know he's alluding to those events by these words. He's going to be there for a little while longer. Then he's going to go back to heaven where he came from. They're going to look for him, but they're not going to find him. And then where he goes to heaven, you cannot come. And this expression, you cannot come, you're not you're going to seek me but won't find me and you cannot come, that sits in their mind to such an extent that they repeat Jesus' words in verse 36. What is the statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me and where I am, you cannot come. If he is a great teacher, a miraculous teacher, if he's going away, they, it makes them curious. Listen, your time is limited. If you don't repent now, then you can't come where I'm going. Where is he going? John 14. John 14. He has told them, of course, where he is going. And here is one example of it. John 14, verse 1. 1 to 4. 1 to 4. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. He's taught them and he's taught elsewhere too, even publicly, that... He is going back to the Father. And if you want to be with me, with the Father, you must believe in me now. If you don't believe in me now, you cannot come. It's either now or never. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. Hebrews 9, 27. We die once and then there is judgment. If we die once, we must believe now before we die and before we face the judgment of God. It's necessary to believe now. Isaiah, he preached the same in Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Isaiah preaches, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Even John and Jesus preached something similar. When they said, Repent, For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near, so repent. Which didn't mean whenever you feel like it, but repent now. While it's near you, while it's at hand, repent now. John said that in Matthew 3, 2. And Jesus our Lord said it in Matthew 4, 17. Those words were their first public words, according to Matthew's um, narrative in Matthew 3, And four, their first public words. Christ also says something ominous to them. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Proverbs chapter one. Proverbs chapter one. verse 22 Proverbs 1:22 122 1, How long o naive ones will you love simplicity and scoffers delight themselves in scoffing and fools hate knowledge turn to my reproof behold I will pour out my spirit on you I will make my words known to you because I called and you refused I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention and you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof, I will even laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm, and your calamity comes on like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come on you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they shall not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. For the waywardness of the naive shall kill them, and the complacency of fools shall destroy them. But he who listens to me shall live securely and shall be at ease from the dread of Evil Scripture teaches that God calls now, we must repent now, and if we don't repent now, God will not listen to us later. It will be too late. It will be too late and we will receive what we deserve. Moreover, John 7:35 7, 7:35, they wonder, Instead of looking at it eternally, spiritually, in a heavenly-minded way, they are wondering if Jesus is going to go away to another country. John seven thirty-five. The Jews therefore said to one another, Where does this man intend to go, that we shall not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? The dispersion, the dispersion is sometimes known as the uh, diaspora, diaspora or dispersion. When the Jews were punished under the Assyrians and the Babylonians, hundreds of years before this time, when they were punished under the time of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and even among the Greeks, because the Greeks were ruthless against the Jews, the Greek Empire, they were also very brutal against the Jewish nation. During those periods, those are three heightened periods of intense persecution against the Jews. The Jews were uprooted from their homeland and dispersed abroad, scattered abroad. That's why it's known as the dispersion or diaspora, which comes from the Greek word meaning dispersion or to be scattered they were scattered among the Greeks, among the Greek peoples, the Greek culture of the Greek empire. The Jews were scattered. That's why in the book of Acts, after the first several chapters, we find that the apostles are going further and for, or farther and farther into the Greek empire and into Greek cities, first to the synagogues where the Jews live, and then after the synagogues, to the Greek people themselves, to the Gentiles. They go to the Jews who live abroad and then they go to the Gentiles or the Greeks. In the Bible, the word Greek often means Gentile, especially in the New Testament. It means that because it was the Greek empire that ruled the world in that day. And the Greek language and the Greek culture dominated many parts of the Greek empire. They're concerned about that they don't want to repent themselves, but they think Jesus is merely going to go abroad and teach those abroad. They especially do not like the fact that He's going to teach the Greeks. How could a Hebrew or Jewish Messiah, a Jewish Christ, go and teach the Greeks? This, in a sense, is offending them. It will offend them elsewhere, later on in Scripture, that Jesus would commend or uh, deign to go to Greek people, Greek-speaking people even, Gentiles, and speak to them. Why doesn't He stay here among us, among the pure? Especially those inhabitants of Jerusalem who know the most and have proximity to the temple and all of the rituals and the teaching that's found in the temple. Why would he go so far away? So in a sense, they are offended, not understanding what he's saying because he's really talking about going to heaven. Yes, his gospel is for the Gentiles and the Jews and the Jews not only abroad but in Jerusalem, but they in Jerusalem Don't want to believe it. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Shall we preach the Christ who said these words? Let's not ignore these kinds of words when Jesus preaches like this. Shall we preach the other side of Christ? The holiness, the righteousness, the wrath of the Lamb. Shall we preach that also? And behave that way. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.